Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, terrorism and free speech. So, Richard, since uh, last we've talked, we've had this horrible ter- terrorist attack in Paris, Muslim extremists slaughtering the staff of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo in response to some of the satirical images that the magazine has run of Muhammad. So let, let's start there. In the aftermath of the attacks, uh, some media outlets went out of their way to run the cartoons as a show of defiance against the terrorists. Some people didn't run them because they didn't want to inflame the situation. Uh, what's courageous here and what's needlessly provocative? Well, I don't think there's anything under these circumstances that's needlessly provocative um, if you're just showing the cartoons. I think what is really needed is a strong set of unmistakable statements to the effect that these people are entitled to believe what they believe and they're entitled to excommunicate from their faith anybody who doesn't adhere to it. But when it comes to the use of force against outsiders, it's an absolute forbidden situation. If to the extent that they try to organize these things, they are committing conspiracies against the general public welfare. And I think what happens is you want to give them so many targets that they have no target at all. It's a little bit like the Danes, all of them putting on yellow stars after the Germans came in order to uh, protest the stigmatization of the Jews. So I think that everybody ought to run these kinds of things and run them as often as they can. Uh, You cannot let yourself be cowed under these circumstances. And I think it's also perfectly appropriate for the people who run them to say we think that these things are in bad taste, but murder is even in worse taste. How much confidence do you have in something like that playing out over the long term in a place like France? I mean Europe has been notorious, Canada to a lesser extent too, in recent years for these very sort of restrictive uh, laws about hate speech and things like that. Do those have to be reexamined in light of what's going on right now? Um the hate speech stuff doesn't trouble me one way or another. It's the threat to commit murder that, that troubles me. I mean, if they wanted to announce just how much they hated Jews, um, let them seek what they can. It's But when they decide to go beyond speech and beyond persuasion in order to essentially incite people to murder folks, that's where I start to draw the line. I mean, I've often asked myself the following question. Suppose we had a perfect libertarian world in which the use and threat of force were prohibited, fraud was not to be allowed, the central government could not take favorites, what effect would hate speech have? Well, the answer is it would have precious little if you could enforce the rest of the criminal law against these particular actions. What we know about the criminal law, however, is that by the time you punish the guy who's done it, it's too late because often he's killed in the process. So the law of conspiracy is designed to allow you to attack those individuals who planned and organized these things. And I don't mean people just simply talk about the undesirability of Jews and anti-Semitism. I mean people who have conquered plans for action, trying to incite people to use force against them. This is very similar to the debates that we had over the Smith Act in the United States in the wake of the communist um, takeovers in Europe in 1945. And, you know, you want to teach Marxism in the school and on the necessity of the proletarian revolution, be my guess. You want to organize a cell to knock off a president or a senator, I think at that point you go to jail. And what happens is, in the world of ideas, everybody's entitled to believe what they want, but free 
freedom of religion carries with it no warrant to kill other people any more than freedom of action carries with it the right to murder other people. And I think the only way you can stop this is to go at their source. You cannot essentially try to run massive investigations after the fact or looking for co-conspirators when what you have to do is to take their strongholds, risk them apart, because it's quite clear they're completely unrepentant at this particular point in what they're doing. And to that point, Richard, what about immigration? As you, as you know, there is a growing unease in Europe in, in some circles about Muslim immigration given the radicalization in some of the communities there. Can Europe address this problem on a, on a narrow basis just by trying to root out the radical communities or do they have to think about broader reform to their immigration policies? I think there's a kind of a sort of a sad irony in this case. If you were prepared to take, as I would be prepared to take, very strong action against the Islamic State strongholds in Syria and Iraq and and break the networks, then you could be much more relaxed with respect to immigration policy. But if it turns out that you're like the president and you believe that the bomb a day is the appropriate response but no ground motions, everything is talk and nothing is action, now the flow of people going in and out is a much more serious effect because they have places they could go where they could be armed and trained. And so then you have to start thinking about can you find ways to keep people out. Uh, the total ban, I think, is pretty inhumane, and I would not be in favor of that. But you know, you start targeting subpopulations like Muslim youth between the ages of 15 and 30, and and give them a much more thorough. Once over, I think that's one thing. If you find that anybody has actually made a trip without preclearance to places like um, Syria or Iraq, uh, then I think you could have a rule which they're just not going to be allowed back in the country when they try to enter, whether they're citizens or not. Uh, so, yes, I do think you're going to have to do a great deal more than this because people will not tolerate it. Again, Israel is a very good example of this. It used to be that they were fairly welcoming of Palestinian workers in the Israeli territories, in the homeland, uh, but once you just realize that saboteurs can join the ranks, what you tend to do is to shift your supplies of labor to Filipinos and other people from the Far East, and you give them very short visas. They don't become citizens, and their children don't become citizens because of the way in which that would alter the political balance that takes place. Uh, but it's quite clear that unless you do take force, you're going to have to do other things which are going to be much more persuasive, much more pervasive, widespread and significant, and less effective, ironically. We've talked before about the fact that you have a different view than a lot of hardline libertarians about what prophylactic measures are necessary to keep a society safe. This is such a hard enemy to pin down. You know, We often don't – we don't know who they are or where they are or how they're going to strike. These sorts of terrorist cells are sort of organized to exploit the weaknesses of a, of a free society. So Richard, what kind of concessions should honest-to-goodness classical liberals – be willing to make when it comes to civil liberties to try and prevent these kinds of attacks? Well, uh, concession, I'm not quite sure is the right word. What okay. happens is that there's a serious problem here. You can over-deter by going after innocent people, or you can undeter and have many of these criminals get through. The consequences of under-deterrence, of course, are extremely high and that many people could possibly die. There's nothing which says that you're going to stop the next time at 12 people in a satirical place. Uh, you could hit every synagogue in Paris if you want or you could hit some major government building and, and so the losses on that side are extremely high and therefore the civil liberties losses although they're real if it turns out that you're going to 
do more wiretapping of one kind or another, usually just tracking connections as opposed to listening to phone calls, it seems to me that that's a price to be paid. This is basically a rerun with the stakes now more dramatic of the debate that we had with Edward Snowden and so forth, which is how much work could the NSA, the National Security Agency, do um, in order to intercept various messages which will allow them to stop these plots. And since you're right that so much of this stuff is diffuse and decentralized, breaking the communication links and the payment links are absolutely critical, and that requires some degree of invasion of privacy. Now, you can do it stupidly. I mean, there's no reason for the United States government, when I take out a mortgage, to make me produce every check that I don't get from an employer of more than $400 to see whether or not they come from terrorist sources, uh, which they did. Uh, But there are other things that I think you're going to have to do, and it, it's a stem to stern start. But look, let's be very clear about this. The first thing you have to do is you have to reverse the policy and be very aggressive with the home bases that you see, whether they're in Yemen, whether they are in Syria, whether they are in Iraq or anywhere else. Unless you take out the land bases, there will always be a safe haven, and those safe havens will then form loose communication networks with cells around Western Europe and perhaps the United States and wreak similar versions of this. Um, Hollande, to his credit, may be very bad on economic policy, but he's a lot more decisive on this terrorist and militarist issues that you have to face than is our hopeless president, who simply, I think the reason he didn't show up into Paris is because he really had nothing uh, that he wanted to say. He can't bring himself to face the enormity of the challenge that faces us as a free society. Well, since you brought up that point, let me ask you about that. And for our listeners, over the weekend, there was a rally in Paris, 3.7 million people, over 40 world leaders there sort of stand in solidarity with the French. President Obama wasn't there. Neither was Vice President Biden, Secretary of State Kerry, Attorney General Holder, who was already in Paris, didn't attend. A lot of people have been critical of the lack of American participation. And some people defending the president have said, well, it, it was just symbolic. Is it, is it really that big of a deal? So answer that question, Richard. Does it matter that the president wasn't there? Um, it certainly does matter because it's the signal of the general lackadaisical attitude that he takes towards very hard problems that he can solve. Let's suppose you're 100% right that the man cannot make it to Paris because of security complications. He certainly can get on Skype and can be on a big board and announce a message of solidarity that could be broadcast to 3.7 million people. He can actually use the word terrorist once in his life. He could recognize that Islamic terrorists are a distinctive threat. There are no Yazidi terrorists of one kind or another. Uh, he could have done other things less than that. But what was, I think, more striking is that this was just part of a larger tapestry. The man has been absolutely silent about everything and anything which is associated with this particular operation. I mean, he may extend condolences. Now, the good news, quote-unquote, is that I think it may lead the French to re-examine the way in which they've treated Jews within their midst, given the attack on the kosher delicatessens and the synagogues and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, but I have to tell you, you know, as a Jew in the United States, seeing what's happened in Paris and having just been to Israel, I do think there's a lot to be said for the proposition that you're safer in Tel Aviv than you are in Paris at this time. And I do think that the French making it pretty clear publicly, and I think Hollande has done this, uh, that they're not going to tolerate this stuff anymore is an important step to trying to improve the overall type situation. I just wish our president had more moral courage, but I think the president is a man who basically does well when the going is good and does very badly when the going gets tough. So final question, Richard. Every time we have these attacks, there's this cliche passed around that 
Everything has changed. This time is different. And yet we always seem to come back to an equilibrium that is, is pretty close to the status quo ante. Are, are you confident that the West has the will to see this conflict through to completion? No, I am not. I think part of the problem is that the West itself is rather diffuse and disorganized. I've long urged the Pax Americana, meaning that given our dominant position, or at least the potential for a dominant position, militarily and economically, we have to be a very forceful leader on that. We have a president who's essentially MIA. He is missing in action. And no matter what it is that the various Europeans want to do, it's going to take a long time for them to build up their forces. We have to take a very strong leadership position. And the president's main contribution to the debate is when somebody calls uh, terrorist terrorist or calls them Islamic terrorist, he says, well, I'm against all form of extremists. Well, I'm an extremist because I disagree with him so much. He simply loses the law of words because he has lost essentially the capacity to see the difference between good and evil. And so what we do is we need a fundamental change at the top. Hopefully he will have a change in heart and develop and exhibit the kind of moral courage that has been lacking from him ever since he's taken office. But I rather doubt that. It may well be that we have two very difficult years and further tragedies of one kind or another. But it's quite clear that any change in leadership in 2016 will be a change for the better. Uh, I, my own conclusion is on foreign affairs, uh, Barack Obama makes Jimmy Carter look like a political giant. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard, and uh, thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.